folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. As I get older, I've become passionate about finding the best ways to refresh the mind, refuel the body, and rebuild strength so that I can keep doing what I love into my 60s and 70s. If you've got similar goals to me, then I hope you join me each week as I bring you amazing guests from around the world, all with the goal of helping you to improve your sporting performance, regardless of whether you're a triathlete, ocean swimmer, ultra runner, or a gravel racer. In keeping with the theme of helping you to refuel and recover better, today we are joined by sports medicine specialist, Dr. Ava Canero. Dr. Canero has extensive experience of working with elite athletes. She worked for Chelsea Football Club from 2009 to 2015, where she was the first female doctor to sit pitch side in Champions League, Premier League and Europa League competitions, and the only woman to become assistant medical director in a football club internationally. She now works as a specialist consultant at the Sports Medical Group in Harley Street. And in this conversation, we're going to chat about approaches to training, recovery, and nutrition. And in particular, at the end, we're going to talk about whether or not we should be supplementing our diet and how we can find the best way to do that. So let's hear from Dr. Canero. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ava Canero. Lovely, lovely to be here. Many thanks for inviting me. No, you're most welcome. Now, you've got a lot of expertise as a sports medical doctor, but um, perhaps you can give our audience a flavor of how you got to the position you're in now, maybe a potted history of you know, your, your own personal experience in sport, um, some of your journey through your career. Well, I was, um, so my interest in, in sports medicine arises over um, injuries. Actually, I was the typical teenager who loved everything and um, adding the growing skeleton stress to trying to adapt to, um, you know, growth changes and um, different activities that were often not particularly supportive of each other. You know, sort of, I loved horse riding and dancing, particularly ballet at the time. And uh, so I started developing knee pain and um and uh, at the time I saw my my beloved GP now sadly pass and he kept on telling me to rest and the rest period used to extend each time but the knee pain was exactly the same when I returned to my activity and it was like you know a very sort of depressing time for a teenager when you're not able to participate you know you're seeing your colleagues as you know as a school is sort of go on and enjoy and and you're sort of injured and having to sort of not um, withdrawal so that sparks my reading interest thinking there must be more to this than rest you know and uh and I remember being uh sort of finishing my GCSEs going off to America for the first time with my parents on holiday and finding this book by the American College of Sports Medicine in I think it was Disneyland or Epcot or something uh and um finally I'm going oh my god this is it this is all the answers. I still have that book at home, actually. And um, and it was in that moment, actually, that I decided that I really want to become a sports medic. Um, the difficulty is then that uh, there was no formal training in the UK at the time. Mm. So I do my medicine training and try and attach myself to places that have an interest in sports medicine. So Nottingham had a master's at then and so did London. And then, but I finished my training and there's still no, no um, formal training in sports medicine. So I started doing sort of trauma and orthopedic jobs, which I'm told, you know, it's like a, do the orthopedic way. But watching my orthopedic colleagues, they spend a lot of time in theatre and enjoy it. And I'm like desperate to get out and see how the person moves, you know. So so in my heart, I knew my calling was somewhere else. And then I discovered this great course in Australia. So I jet off to, to Australia to try and join it. Obviously, I'm British trained, so there are limitations around registration being a doctor. So I do a couple of, of years there, which are actually incredible for me. They really have very much consolidated uh, who who I am and who I wanted to be at that time as a sports physician. And then um, I returned to the UK and do my master's in sports medicine. I start working with West Ham to do the, the thesis for, for that master's. And then um, finally the, the Olympics are coming, sports medicine training is finally recognized and there's a formal program and I'm one of the first eight candidates to join. So that's how um, I finally uh, am able to sort of qualify as a as a sports medic, but it's a it's a young specialty in the UK. So often, and you'll get this all the time. There's some confusion around 
what we are and what our expertise is and where our roles kind of mm. fit in with each other. So I'm always finding myself explaining actually what my job is and, and declining offers for massage and things. <laughs> well, when I, when I started out, um, I think I'm probably a little bit older than you, but I wanted to work as a, a strength specialist within professional sport. And when I started working with myself 30 odd years ago, um, there wasn't there wasn't any such specialist. I mean, there there are master's courses now in strength and conditioning, um, but there wasn't anything then. And I ended up doing the um, certified strength and conditioning specialist course that the National Strength and Conditioning Association from America run, and they did they ran a, a cohort here in the UK, um, and I was one of the first people on that. that I think that was probably nineteen early nineties, um, but still there weren't specialist sports conditioners then you generally got the physio at the club so if it was a cricket club rugby club the physio would take the fitness training you know they wouldn't they wouldn't have any formal qualifications in weightlifting they'd be sort of following some bodybuilding magazines to give the players a strength program um they'd be doing they'd be doing some stretching based on perhaps some of their physio understanding but not necessarily sports specific um there there, there was sort of a the sort of the scientific understanding of recovery, which we're going to talk about later, but everybody was trying to do bits that were outside of their sphere because there was nobody with the expertise to do that. And so my learning was really all about um, finding out on the job, finding little courses here and there, a strength and conditioning course, um, a sports nutrition course, speaking to people like yourself and getting some expertise on, you know, speaking to physios and thinking, right, okay, well, when we've, when we've got somebody from pain-free, and they've got the mobility back. Let's say they've, they've torn up some ligaments in their ankle so they can they can stand, they can move, there's no pain. But now they need to get their fitness back. There's a gap there. Nobody nobody was there providing that gap between pain-free and sport-ready. Um, so I spent a lot of time working with the physios, trying to find out what we could do to, to prevent injuries, if we can, to make people more resilient. Um, and so it, even then, it, by the time I got to the point where I could have done a master's course. I probably got the knowledge that I would have acquired anyway. So it was sort of, you know, I was a bit too, I was a bit too early and a bit too late. Um, so I, it is exciting. I think it gives yeah. us a broad yeah. um, understanding. I think of what we do. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. my main challenge. I think I don't know whether you find the same is explaining what you do to others sometimes because it's poorly understood even by orthopedic colleagues or whatever. They just think, but you're not an orthopedic surgeon. You're sort of kind of like a GP, but you know, like it's just like, well, I'm not, not, I'm, I'm in that interface, you know, in terms of my, and it's so exciting to be part of an MDT, you know, multidisciplinary team that does that, that returns athletes or, you know, sort of, of, of whatever level, really, back to the training and the, the performance best. I, I just say to people, I'm a high performance fitness consultant now and, and sort of then let them try and work it out. <laughs> so- you can the, the the good thing about that is when nobody knows what you really do you can invent all sorts of fancy titles for yourself that sound brilliant so we could i'm sure spend uh, several hours and several podcasts filling filling this so um, and maybe we'll have to return to uh, to have you on the show at a later date to talk about some some more specific stuff but so let's let's just cover some generalizations today okay now i know you've worked in the world of football and i know you work with a lot of um, athletes and and human beings that are at a consider let's call them elite humans or high performance humans as my business is called um when it comes to training most most of my listeners by the way will be endurance athletes and um the majority of those will be triathletes and maybe trail runners um all sport requires a a 365 day attention to the training doesn't it you can't just have a fallow period for three months when you go you know, you go traveling, you, you need, if you're serious about achieving your goals, you need to have a, a year round attention. But of course that attention will, um, and, and the priorities will change throughout the year. Um, in, in endurance sports, I, I don't know how it is in team sports uh, now. I, I know how it was when I worked in rugby league cricket, but we talk about periodization because that's how the Eastern Europeans do it and or did it. And that's what we've sort of grown up with. But um, what's your approach to uh, year round training and particularly building resilient and robust athletes so that they are able to withstand the rigors of their sport and get injured less well uh, um, it really depends on that is very unique to the athlete so it depends mm. on what they do if, but but i would completely agree with you i think the times when you gave an athlete a month off to sort of go on holiday and recover um and long gone not without a program of work and i think in the sort of pro elite sort of end of the spectrum 
that has to be very specific to the sport they do. Um, so my first question is like, you know, what what level athlete? Are they an all-rounder? Are they, like you say, an endurance athlete? And then you taper a program that is specific to their goals. How many competitions do they want to do that year? Mm-hmm. Um Importantly, sort of obviously, most of the people I see carry a history of injury. Uh, they're coming back or have had something chronic that, that sort of has been niggling for a while and maybe has got them out of performance. So bearing that in mind um, really affects how much. Because sometimes there are, as you know, give and takes, you know, and and um, especially as an athlete ages, we, we have to then... Uh, be very specific about what we want to achieve in that in that sort of process. So, um, you know, uh, in the cyclist, is it important that we might need to modify your bike that may have a performance um, element to it, but that actually that's going to keep your back healthier for longer, and therefore that's a good, you know, that's that's a good buy. Or actually, is getting your personal best at this race more important than having a very fit back for the rest of the year? And then you assume that risk. With the athletes, I think that's a very personal journey. Bearing in mind the injury history of the athlete, the genes, the age, the you know, so it's a it's a sort of quite a um, difficult question to answer generally. Mm. But I, I I guess the philosophy is taper to the individual, understand their goals, understand their genes, understand their injury history, and understand their mind and what's important to them, and then design, like you say, an all year program that actually fits with what they want to achieve and with the risks they may or may not want to take. For endurance athletes, how high an importance and priority would you place on the strength uh, and mobility or mobility and strength? Actually, I'll, I'll go the other way around because I've, I've sort of come to understand over the years that it's better to work on mobility first before increasing the strength of a, somebody in lack of range of motion. So what, yeah, obviously it's in team sports, the power and the explosive aspects are important. Um, endurance athletes tend to think of more about working on the engine. I have this analogy about a car, you know, and so they work on the engine and they polish the engine and they service the engine, but they forget about the body work. And often it's the body work that lets them down in competition. I would agree. And um, it's, it's not only um, the endurance athletes that I treat in clinic when they discover strength training, feel lighter, better, more able to compete, actually younger, <laughs> you know, the words that they use. Um, so it's often, unfortunately, the ones I see discover it through a process of injury. Mm-hmm. So therefore we are having to sort of recover an injury. And then as part of that rehab program, you need to strengthen X or Y. And actually part of this is also important to strengthen core. And, and all of a sudden they come around and go, oh, but it's, that's so different too. And it's actually that's going to, going to make you much more efficient at actually being able to deliver um, the forces that you need to to get your performance. And um, it's it's quite a, an exciting journey um, to actually witness because on the other end of the spectrum, when they come out, they're like, oh my goodness, you know, I feel I'm running better. I feel I'm performing better. Um, but it is very difficult to sell because um, I have the advantage that they've come to me injured. I think it's very difficult to sell that endurance <laughs> athlete if they haven't had an issue that interferes with their performance. Yeah. And even then, I'm having to sort of keep the reins on and saying, no, strength first. This is going to protect you. This is going to protect this injury. Otherwise, we're going to break down the moment you push beyond your... And sort of, so it's a, and it's a hard sell reminder. Um, and and then, but, but when they sort of turn that corner, then they realise, because they're feeling the effects of... Of that strength training and that strength doesn't have to be as well you you'll you'll know all about this but it doesn't have to be getting into a gym doing static weights i think increasingly that strength is much more functional much more um you know specific to mm-hmm. what they actually want to perform in and what their deficits are in terms of that created an injury in the first place in in the you know regarding the patients that come to my clinic yeah i I mean, I'm you, you know, you don't have to sell me on this idea. That's that's my whole job, is, is um, or it was, as a, you know, in professional sport, is to keep the athletes strong and healthy. And um, with with the work of the physio, it is a hard sell to endurance athletes because they think, well, I've got limited time. I need to spend this on becoming a faster runner, so I need to run more. But actually, if you did ten or fifteen percent less running and ten or fifteen percent and filled that time with mobility work, actually you probably would end up being a faster runner because you would move better and you'd recover better. And like you said, you'd feel lighter and you'd have a little bit more power and balance. And, you know, it's the whole package that makes you better, isn't it? It's not just one aspect of it. Absolutely. And and there's that, um, I think, in the 
you find a lot of the endurance guys that I see in clinic, um, and sorry, by guys, I'm being very American women and men that come to clinic, um, are are generally um in some way using this cardiovascular sort of endorphin high that they get to mm-hmm. counteract some of the sort of um really difficult stuff that they encounter in their professional lives. Although, yeah. you know, so it is very difficult to sort of withdraw them from that. Um, and often really helps to manage anxiety and stress and things. And actually, but strength, and I always say strength has that benefit too. Strength work has that benefit too. And when you start feeling better, you do feel it's just a very different sort of load. And um, and they one that they need to be used to. But I always remind them sort of you're training harder than my pro athletes. And we don't train them harder because they get injured. And there's that learning curve of actually more is not necessarily better. It's about mm-hmm. the quality. And I think strength comes into that quality element. Yeah, I've got a couple of athletes that are in my in my tribe that are currently recovering from, one's recovering from a broken tib and fib. Mm-hmm. And the other one's recovering from a heavy bike fall about a year ago now, but and nothing broken, but landed heavily on his pelvis, on his hip, you know, dislodged his, his pelvis was all twisted and that led to all sorts of compensatory muscle tightness. Uh, and he's had to do a lot of that stuff, like you said, with the physio and go go really um, rewind in the way he approached his cycling. But he's saying now, I might, my power, my, my functional threshold power might not be quite as high as I had it before, but gen- overall, I feel so much better and stronger now and, and we focused you know while he wasn't able to cycle as much we focused on using sleep trackers to improve his sleep and his sleep behaviors we've looked at his nutrition we've looked at his his approach to alcohol consumption and um you know how he lives his life and all of those things then and getting him to do more mobility and strength work and so that whole package has led to an improved person in lots of ways not just with his cycling Absolutely. Um, but 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 and it's a shame often that they have to learn uh, athletes have to learn the hard way by by the frustration and the expense because it's you know you don't get to see somebody like you for nothing so they have to they have to they have to invest money in order to get better and you know hopefully that lesson's learned and they can carry on it's a concept that i think we should teach in schools you know the the concept Mm. of condition and um being well to do the sport you love but but i think in some ways we learn bad habits when we're younger when our physiology is amazing and our metabolisms are you know fantastic and you can literally heal from anything Mm. and and but the i think the the positive on this is like when they come i'm so old i'm getting injured all the time it's like no actually you know yes there's an age element to everything for sure but um, in a way, when we're 20, we learn bad habits and we get away with them because our metabolism is amazing. Yeah. Um, but they are bad habits. They're not the habits that we try to teach our elite, you know, footballers or our elite sort of pro athletes. They actually, we teach them what we're teaching you because it's all about actually good condition. And uh, But I, I wish we, it, it isn't like that. And I, I, you know, with the young athletes I see, for example, uh, and, you know, kids nowadays, they're, they're competing in like about five sports and they're amazing at all of them. And, you know, you have this like high functioning parents and, and you're suddenly withdrawing them because they're injured. And there are, you know, often challenging conversations to have with teachers around, no, he can do, he can participate, but he can only participate because we're, no, he isn't injured, but we're increasing you know, his loading, his his return to the sport has to be a gradual process. And there's all this like, you know, you know removal from injured or not. Well, no, that's a process, you know, that, that's a continuum. We don't really have, and I think it, it is changing and I think it will change with people like you and me sort of, and and because there are, there is an increasing interest in this. And, uh, but it'd be wonderful if we taught, you know, um, like I think, Adults when they're young to not have to learn, like as you say, the hard way. Well, there's that 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 phrase, isn't there, about you can't run away from a bad diet. But of course, you probably can when you're young, and you can probably run away from bad training loads when you're young because you, you recover and you do pay yeah. the price. And yeah, you eventually, but earlier. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you do. And I, I went. I, I worked at Yorkshire Cricket and um, for five years, and um, in the academy, we had a lot of this with the with the boys, particularly the bowlers, where they were sort of planting that lead foot down really hard and they were getting Osgood slatters and sort of bone bone growth problems around the knees. And then we were having to withdraw them from any sport at school and in, and in the club. But they 
because they were good, even at 16, they were playing in the local village first team. They were playing for the school first team. They were going twice a week to Yorkshire Nets. So they were, they were playing cricket five or six days a week. Some days they were playing in the morning, you know, for the junior team. And then they were playing for the first team in the afternoon. And, you know, when you're growing and you're 15, some people just can't cope with that sort of loading. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's, but, but when you're enthusiastic, it's, it's very difficult. And when you've got enthusiastic parents, I'll, I'll use, I'll use that a politically very, correct very phrase, enthusiastic yes. parents. Um, it's even harder, isn't it? What about older athletes then? You, you talked about with age. Um, I'm 58 now and I've definitely noticed um, how age has affected my ability to recover and what happens when I get injured. So how does your approach or what changes in approach do you recommend for athletes, say, that are over the age of, say, 45 and I think, again, it's very specific to the athlete, their injury history, their genetics, their sport history. Actually, it isn't, you know, it isn't the same. Um, it, it isn't the same when you've had a history of actually being um, incre- incredibly physically active and sporty all your life or discovering sport for the first time at 42. You know, I've got those patients as well. Fantastic, amazing human beings who at the age of 40 or whatever lose you know, 20 kilos or something to rediscover the, the physical life. Um, it, it's a different process in, in sort of somebody who's done sport all their life and have that sort of innate proprioception reception and manage, you know, like where we're sort of coming into later life. My, obviously through clinic, it's around injuries and, and managing um, what's already there and, and protecting anything that may have had intervention before. And then, the sort of again the education process around it has to be around quality so more is not better and not ignoring learning to listen to your body in a way that you do have conditions that um are a result of aging or previous his injury history because as you age you you have more injuries as a result of um you know like added participation superimposed um it, it's important to listen to what your body's telling you around that um, and managing that accordingly. So, and, mm. and that is then becomes very specific to, um, you know, sort of go, if it's a knee injury, then we're managing that in the, in, again, in, in the process of wanting to achieve certain goals. Um, I would say that uh, rests hugely important, uh, making sure the diet, as you say, diet alcohol is extremely important um, and managing the goals. Uh, are they realistic? You know, but I, I think there is a syndrome a little bit. I'm sorry, I'm going to be sexist here, but particularly men, <laughs> when there is the kind of this kind of, I think women get other reminders of, of age. I see, again, it depends on the individual, but there has to be an acceptance that you cannot pretend to be 20 because that's only going to lead you to, um, to sort of, um, injuries and it isn't about actually you have to train less or you can't enjoy competition or you have to withdraw from an activity but the other thing that happens with age as well is we get busier and uh, so you know you get the weekend warrior syndrome oh my god I can't play um you know football with my friends or tennis with my friends at the weekends without breaking down well how often how many times do you do actually play football or play tennis it isn't about your age right now how, how often did you play tennis when you were 20 um you know and uh, and it'll, it'll be the answer is always like, oh, yeah, but I was always out with my friends because I had exactly. Well, when you were 20, not only were you 20, but your condition was one of playing your sports, participating in what you wanted to do, doing your running X number of times a week. Mm-hmm. Whereas at 45, you've got a family, you've got kids, you've got a job, you've got other responsibilities. And yes, your only time is maybe Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Well, there needs to be an understanding that in order to do that and not get injured, you need to introduce something that re- replicates that movement and that that conditioning during the week. Otherwise, I, yes, your twenty minutes are going to probably cost you, and, I, and for a really miserable long time. I, I've started skiing in the last three or four years, and one thing I, I do recognise: uh, most of my friends who ski have been encouraging me for years to do this. Um, been skiing since they were young, but fortunately, they do keep themselves fit during the week. So when they go skiing, they've got the they've got the fitness conditioning to be able to um, ski every day at a high level but there's a lot of people i know um you know that are in business that, that learned to ski when they were young um and then go once a year but they've done nothing for that whole year and they've still got the ability but they haven't got the fitness anymore and so they get injured you know you probably see this with people who come in with certainly cruciate injuries and um 
and what have you from a fall on in the afternoon or from the latter part of the ski holiday because they just haven't got they haven't got the recovery plus they've probably been having a few drinks at night and going to bed late um and there's that whole well in my head i'm still 20 but i'm forgetting that my body's 45 or 50 now and, and really like even you know few of us will will say that they used to do that you know at 20 you're probably like you say keeping yourself in a very good physical condition by the sheer nature of you know your social life then participating with your friends being at school being at uni you know so so I think there's um I always try and say this is an optimistic point um you know that, that yes aging happens and it happens way earlier you know an elite pro athlete is probably you know we could we think of them as mature when they're sort of approaching the sort of wrong side of 20 you know so like later 20s like, okay so now we have to manage um and people are always really surprised by that so yes age is a factor but I think the biggest factor for me is lack of condition and understanding that mm. um, in the same way that we do with the young athletes, you know, when we look at, right, tell me about your week. And they're like, well, but um, you've never, they've never thought about actually how much sport with your Oshkut Slatters are doing in a week, plus playing with the friends in the evenings. And, you know, in the same way, I think uh, I have that conversation with the older athlete going, well, how many times a week do you do anything that one, you know, involved running or involves playing something that, was similar to your football um, and uh, and they're often shocked by the actually yes you're right it's like well there's no you know that's what you're doing is more an insult to your body than actually yes there's benefits to that exercise but it'd be way healthier if you introduced at least two you know like three is my magic number in a week if you can do more it's fantastic but at least three times um mm-hmm. it's it's really important i have to say that most of the triathletes i know are pretty good at um, doing that I training there they're, they're, they're probably at it most most days of the week endurance athletes are a different species uh, yeah. and they are they are yeah they're the opposite of that i have to usually um stop them from training yeah it's like much. yeah it's like it's like holding it's like holding the lead of a greyhound or a ter- or, or a, a spaniel isn't it you know you haven't to hold on really hard so they don't get carried away yeah. but you um you talked about rest and recovery there this is a this is a thing that i'm you know i've been i've been studying deep health i've been studying rest and recovery i mentioned hrv earlier um, one thing that's always intrigued me, and I still don't think I found the answer, so maybe, maybe you can help, is is there any way you can truly measure when an athlete's recovered? Now, just before you answer, I'll give you an example. If, if you talk to a runner or a triathlete, often they'll measure their recovery by whether their legs are sore or not. Right now, that's the muscular system that we've taxed there. And, you know, you get all of those um um, that muscle damage from repeatedly pounding the pavements. And when the legs are no longer sore, they think it's okay to go back to training. And I'm always asking them to consider the other 10 or 11 systems that are operating in the body. And, you know, well, what about your central nervous system? Is that recovered? What about your end- what about your endocrine system? You know, what about your cardiovascular system? H- how are they recovering? They're like, just look at you like you're an alien. So um, have you found any ways where you can truly measure when an athlete's recovered? Well, I think we've become better, like you say, like I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, heart rate variability. I think that's probably um, still our most objective measure of mm-hmm. recovery. I think it is sensitive. However, like you say, the body's an amazing, complex, almost magical uh, system that, you know, or rather set of systems that all communicate with each other neurally. So it is impossible to measure one and ignore the others. Um, one of the things that we have been increasingly speaking about in the pro sport end is um, the whole athlete, the human factors. So like I said, you mentioned the central nervous system. Well, um, yes, I think all these objective measures are hugely important. And I think we we are in getting increasingly good at developing um, technology that is able to measure things that as adjuncts to help us. But one of the things we are not very good at is, um, like you say, perception uh, to one system, you know, the central nervous aspect of all of that. If you are, for example, um, have a, come across uh, a pathogen and you're fighting them, or you're starting to be perimenopausal, or you have a terrible um, uh, uh, problem around family, there is an effect on your immune system. There is an effect on your recovery, and we're unable to measure that. So increasingly, I try to teach um, my patients, my athletes, to um, you know, the, the, I guess the to to be um, self-aware, to be, and I, I use the word mindful carefully because I know it switches off a lot of people. But 
all these adjuncts are fantastic. Um, but in um, the pro end of sport, when we have the, um, the luxury of watching them round the clock, mm-hmm. what has increasingly uh, become evident is that we cannot ignore the human factors. So much influences recovery uh, other than sleep, um, immune function, diet, uh, you know, like a, um, eating something that was different uh, affects your immune system. Well, I- uh, you know, like an environment, um, like you said, you mentioned uh, travel. Uh, when you travel, you're not only adjusting to sleeping on a poor bed or different bread, You, it's there's a different temperature, there's a different um, humidity, there's a different set of pathogens, all of which your body has to learn about and defend you from. All of these assist, all of these affect recovery. And it is important to actually ask yourself, we ask our athletes, I've got your objective measures. I've got all your numbers. Mm. How do you feel? Um, and and actually try and get some, obviously, uh, um, measurement of of how are they. But, but how do they feel around, um, aside from competition? Like, that's really difficult to do. You know, that especially in the in your in your um, because I guess in the in the recreational athlete we have the luxury of being able to do that aside from you know, the the sort of the um, stresses of major international competition, or we should be. But I often find that actually recreation athletes put a pressure on themselves that silences um, all these other uh, measures. When there's an injury that comes into my clinic, there's always a precursor. And it always isn't always just overtraining mm-hmm. when you ask. There's always more of a story of, but actually my children were sick and I had to stay up, you know, and so we... It's it's almost impossible, and it so is affected by your relationship with the person that you're treating or, or managing, um, to be able to be trusted with that information as well, which is incredibly relevant. And it's not that mm-hmm. you're going to then go and, as a doctor, obviously we have confidentiality um, to handle, and it isn't that you're going to pass that information on to anybody, but it's actually we need to factor it in that maybe the numbers may look good, but actually they're not feeling great. You know, like I I um. And I'm always having this uh, discussion with my very academic colleagues, you know, who love the numbers. And don't get me wrong, I wholly support um, objectivity in sport because it's something that we're, it's new to us. We haven't had the objective measures of Mm. performance recovery for a really long time. So we're super excited um, uh, about having them, but they're not the be all and end all. And I always go back to my medical school training. You know, I remember going, looking at my numbers and going, Goodness, you know, the white cell count of this person means that they should be properly septic and in intensive care, probably. And looking at the person and having a cup of tea with a biscuit, looking at me and going, you know, so don't get obsessed with the numbers. No, they're there for you to use and, and, you know, factor in your decision making, but they're not the real one. Yeah, I um, was reminding somebody the other day that because I've got this big thing um, with, with a lot of people about they, they overly focused on the gadgets and the data. And if it says, well, I've got poor HRV, then they might get up bouncing around like a spring lamb, but thinking, well, I've got poor HRV, so I shouldn't train equally. They'll get up on a day where their HRV is showing really high and they're recovered and they feel like they're under a, a great strain. And um, But it says I'm okay to train, so I should train. Uh, yeah, but your body's not telling you that. And um, reminding somebody the other day that before we had access to all these gadgets, which have only been around maybe for – well, for polar heart rate monitors, probably since the mid-90s, we, we had to rely more on the subjective measures. We had to listen to our body. And athletes were still breaking world records and winning Olympic medals and being, you know, scoring 40 goals a season back in the 60s and 70s before all this stuff came up, weren't they? So, um, you know, but I think we've lost, I think a lot of people have lost that skill now because we, we've got data that tells us, but it, but Back to your point about the environment and the harmony and the balance in somebody's life. I, I do. I had a debate with a friend who's an elite coach in a in an individual sport, and we were talking about professional footballers who were going through a run of you know uh, bad form. So we could talk about Marcus Rashford, maybe. Um, what's going on in his life? That's you know he's not a bad player. He hasn't suddenly gone from being a world beater to a bad player in a few months. So what's going on in his life at the moment? That's meaning that. You know, obviously he's got a lot of pressure. The fans are getting on him, the press are getting on him, people saying he should move. Um, things are obviously not happening at that club. Um, but but everybody gets on at him saying, Well, he's rubbish, he shouldn't be playing, he shouldn't be picked. Um, 
I'd, I'd love to know what's going on in his life. And I'm sure if you've got some wise, if they've got some wise people at Manchester United, they'll no doubt be on top of that. But, but of course, they need those players to be playing every week as well, don't they? So, um, uh, anyway, here we are. We're going down a rabbit hole and we're running out no, of time. No, so, so no, I'm, I'm really with you. And I get, I get angry when um, it's so easy to judge a life um, that's on a screen and pretend that, you know, everything yeah. it. And I've had, you know, amazing patients, most dedicated, most talented, who sometimes had, you know, mm. mothers in hospitals and, you know, dying. Yeah. And I don't want people to know. So I think we're in, it's, it's, um, I think it's wonderful to be passionate and be, um, you know, and support a team. But I think we shouldn't forget the humans behind behind that story, as you say. When you're um, helping athletes to recover from their activities, again, um, you know, techno- there's a lot of technology out there now that we're um, bombarded with that's going to help us recover quicker and faster. Um, which methods have you found give the biggest return? I've got a fairly good idea of what you're going to say here, but maybe, maybe, maybe that in, in your connections, you've discovered something that's better than the, uh, the obvious ones. You mean like um, as measures, technology-wise as measures? Of- well, so for instance, triathletes, I don't know whether you use these in, in team sports, but um, they use these, uh, um, I can't remember the name of the company now, but they're, they're like um, a sleeve that you put on the legs. And they inflate and deflate. Uh, I can't think. I've lost the name. I don't, yeah. I, so yeah, like, and there's um, uh, yeah, there's ice bath, ice bath, for instance, cryotherapy. You know, everybody's talking about yeah. this new technology to help us. But is it any better than just getting a bit more sleep? So yeah, sometimes you uh, having to. Um, we we used to get bombarded by all sorts of technologies from all over the world. It looks fantastic, glossy, beautiful. Um, beautiful bits of kit that looks amazing and would look amazing in a clinic, you know, like if somebody came to visit. Um, it's again, it's around individual needs. I actually love the water as a recovery uh, measure uh, okay. more than I do cryo. And of course, if you've got joints that swell and, you know, you've got issues or whatever, ice focus to an area, big, big lover of it. I love the water both because as low limb athletes, it, it sort of tractions the spine a little bit, allows sort of for that, for discs and things to, to so for vertebrae to be um, tractioned and for discs to actually not feel the pressure. The compression effects of the water at the right temperature is great for recovery. And as you say, you know, you mentioned mobility before, it allows you to move for blood to flow um, and uh, and uh, in, in a way that aids recovery. And um, so, so still very simply, um, moving in the water for me is fantastic. And actually through... Um, but, you know, the sort of the most intense periods, the first thing that we sometimes uh, did was put people in the water. So when um, you get when you get them in the water, then it is, it's, I mean, a lot of triathletes will swim. So swimming is good enough. Or are you talking about getting them in cold water or no, into, so actually into- getting them in, in your typical hydrotherapy pool, which is a, a temperature that's actually quite well suited to body temperature. So it isn't a shock, no more stress. Mm-hmm. So there is an actually moving uh, both like so moving hips moving knees moving i actually wouldn't want a triathlete to swim and um, if they want a little swim up and down that that is an unstressful is not a problem but actually the idea is to actually move joints in a range of movements that distracts and adds blood flow uh, to musculature so offloading the structures that have been worked um you know and mobilizing okay. the structures that have been overworked I'm balancing with that with so actually getting the structures that didn't work to work a little bit. Okay, so doing some so doing some different doing some different movement patterns to swimming and cycling and running. So move maybe moving maybe moving in in multiple directions because in in most hydro pools you can stand up, can't you? So you can exactly. move you can move across the pool side to side it's or uh, up to here if possible and actually sort of moving your hips and moving. Now it, it doesn't it's not you don't need to do this for two hours actually. It's like but it's actually not. So it's not a, uh, one of the things we've, we had is obviously fixture compression, like in the football world. So so we had to, um, often it was more about actually mobilizing. So not allowing, you know, absolute rest, not moving, not good for recovery. You just get, you know, like it's much, you see much the, harder return. I've remembered the name of those uh, boots now. They're called Normatec boots are the most popular oh, yeah, ones. Right, they, it's, like, it's basically like a, a sleeve that you put right on. And if you go to any of the Ironman triathlon um, races in the expo tent, they've got, 
they've got these like sunbeds, reclining reclining chairs with these pairs of boots, and everybody's got them attached to a little machine. And it's it, it's basically helping with Venus return while you lie there and listen to uh, listen to a podcast or something. But I, I just contend that if you'd walked down to the expo tent, you'd have got the same Venus return in your well, legs anyway. Walked walked in a pool where you're actually you're compressing, yeah. but actually you're letting blood flow. But uh, yeah. you know, but the but the effect I understand now, the effect of not of compression on the limb that's that's probably swelling a little bit with sort of the, the whole load thing is probably quite a quite a, a nice placebo anyway. And and I think placebo is is something to be taken into mm-hmm. consideration in performance as well. Whatever makes you feel good is significant in your mindset. But you um, but none of these would ever take the place of just getting adequate sleep, would they, in terms of recovery? I mean, that's the, that's the best way to, re- to, to help repair the body and the brain, uh, no doubt can, about it. And uh, absolutely, you've got the luxury of, of being able to sleep well. A, a lot of the endurance athletes are treated actually sleep poorly when they're in the most stressful bit of competitions or mm-hmm. you know, when they've done, I've got yeah. some crazy patients who do um, – um, multiple endurance events in five. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I joke with them saying it's like you know it's actually so calm what you do. It's not it's not sports, you know. But uh, but they it's almost impossible to recover enough to to sort of then perform at your best. But that's kind of part of the game, I guess. Um, but but also uh, so if you're not sleep, I think there's something to be said about actually central nervous system depression in a way. Like I, I and I say that very carefully because we associate central nervous system depression with um. Uh, you know, medication and things. It's more actually about uh, trying to calm that arousal. So if you don't have, um, you know, the ability to sleep well or the number of hours, yes, nothing replaces sleep. It's fantastic. Everything flows better. There's the, all the repair hormones that come into place with sleep. And obviously, you know, it, it does affect the way we feel and our alertness and all of that is is conducive to a good performance. But some Athletes find that actually very difficult. They're, they're in a state of high arousal. And I always say, well, think of techniques. And there are so many now, mindfulness being one of them, but there are many good techniques and very simple apps that train your brain to sort of calm the arousal of your central nervous system. And remember, when that happens, um, that's when we actually we release our repair home. So if you're unable to sort of take your, your X number of hours, that would be ideal world scenario remember that all is not lost (laughs) your body is able to cope with not sleeping for a bit but actually allowing your body to sort of calm down and training your mind to be able to do that and most of the pro athletes now have some training in this coming that mountain not only allows you to perform better but um it allows you to rest and recover that's when you're good repair hormones are being released so we're basically talking about getting out of a fight or flight state and into a rest and digest so into into a parasympathetic state so so meditation yoga breathing that sort of stuff yeah does work and now a lot of people don't like the whole you know label yoga or meditation or whatever but uh, the mindful practice of a lot of apps now around breathing well and just even Teaching yourself to breathe well is not only great for your lungs, but actually does, you know, change your heart rate, does change your blood pressure, does reduce yep. your cortisol level. And this is recovery. This is also recovery. It doesn't have to be full sleep. I've had a couple of uh, guests on uh, talking about um, breathing. Patrick McEwen, I don't know if you know him from the Oxygen Advantage, but also had a, um, a physiologist researcher from the United States who, who does a lot of with nose breathing and the, and the benefits from nose breathing and, um, you know, learn it, learning to breathe correctly, if you like. Because um, I think there's a, there's a, there's saying you have to sleep is pressure in itself sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and that can lead to actually higher arousal. I'm not sleeping there for a while. Yeah. Or the old orthosomnia getting in there, you know, we need to go to sleep, but we're anxious about going to sleep. So we don't sleep. So, but, um, you know, so I think it's, um, it's encouraging to think that, uh, there are other ways of recovering if you cannot achieve your yes we love sleep you know like if you can absolutely sleep as much as you can but um um well not too much actually <laughs> like it's it, like your performance as well what what do you what are your thoughts on all of the gadgets that are available now to to sort of try to um self-quantify if you like uh, we talked about sleep trackers I, i've been wearing the whoop um wristband for a few years now i know that the aura rings thought of quite highly um We've got constant glucose monitors. Um, there are all sorts of other wearables that we can get. How do you view those? Uh, I mean, and it's, again, it's another rabbit hole. So maybe you could just give me a sh- give me a short version. No, so yeah, so um, so I embrace new technology. I think it's it's important to learn. I think it's also important um, 
to know what you want to achieve with it. So I have very simple, uh, you know, I use very simple uh, um, devices that, for example, help me personally when I'm in clinic, do simple things like remember to breathe, remember to get up, remember to drink water, remember to actually you know, visit the loo every now and again, because I will get into that work state where I lose all that. And that's mm-hmm. not good for, for my, my performance in clinic. So, but um, in as an athlete, uh, if you sort of, just remember what you want to achieve. Remember, regardless of any marketing, no, no device is perfect, even at the highest level, investing millions into these devices. They were, they did incur errors and quite significant ones sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they do change uh, with environmental conditions. So it's important not to get completely obsessed with them. Use them, learn from them. Also make a judgment of, is this telling me the truth? Is, does that feel true to me? Because that's important. Because I think because no device is perfect, if your device is telling you you had a terrible night's sleep and you wake up, you know, and you think I had the best night, and you sort of get depressed because oh my god, I didn't do, you know, it, it's just that that's just not real life. Your body is real time and real life. So so I embrace them, but I also regard them with caution because I think um, if it helps you, fantastic. You can learn about yourself. You can make improvements about yourself. But I wouldn't get too obsessed with them either. That your whole good performance is going to depend on that because you can end up, and I have history of athletes that wake up with terrible data and we're all like this on the sidelines going, oh my goodness, this is going to, you know, uh, coming back from X to Y injury and have the performance of their life. And it's important to remember that, that as human beings, um, a supratentorial system, so, you know, like what happens in our brain absolutely changes what happens in our body and nobody can measure that. We've got no device to do that. People pretend they can sometimes, but the truth is that that is something that is a superpower that that we cannot measure. So mm. remember to sit of the kindness, the self kindness, with not getting obsessed, not torturing yourself over something that doesn't look quite right or doesn't quite fit, because it may not translate to poor performance. You, you mentioned self kindness there. I've had quite a few podcasts with people talking about um, self compassion. Um, you know, being kind to yourself, all of that sort of stuff. Again, that's another rabbit hole we could spend a whole yes. podcast talking about. Yes. Um, I, I've i got several subjects uh, and I can see we're running out of time. I, I wonder if we could visit female athletes and, and menopause at another time because I think we could probably do a podcast on that. We haven't talked about nutrition and the role of nutrition in supporting um, athletic performance and recovery. I know this is an area you have a, a keen interest in. Again, nutrition there's so much noise out there people get confused everybody wants to get everybody wants to get results quickly and the marketeers are very good at telling people you can get results quickly with this um your your thoughts in general um do you do, i presume that you're going to say it depends again on the individual because all good coaches say it depends yes. to pre to preface everything um do you do you think it's based on genetics or age, or do you just think a general healthy approach is best with some I mean, sort of standardized, some basic, simple guidelines? I mean, there's no question that genes will play a part of it. And I think the next, you know, the next sort of decades are going to probably give us more information as to how um, to, to cater for that. You know, very simply, end of the spectrum again, if you have it in your genes to perhaps develop a, you know, um, an inflammatory disease and obviously you're gonna to have to alter what you eat in order to cater for for sort of that illness and um, so I do think that there are you know the the you know when we look at obese people it is you know you, you see very very skinny people that eat a lot and increasingly we know that there must be a gene associated we just don't fully understand mm-hmm. what those are and I would hasten to add that we're not somewhere where we can make uh, um not really evidence-based recommendations on genes and nutrition. And I think, like you say, there's lots of claims. It's lots of, you know, it's a multi-million dollar industry. Um, so we have to be careful that we then don't modify our lives based on, on genes alone. Um, so, cause we don't, we're not yet there in a place where we can make genetic recommendations, I guess. I, I do um, keep it quite basic. I do think that nothing can replace a well-rounded diet I think if you, for um, whatever reason, a big animal lover here, so I completely love and respect vegans, um, but understand that we're omnivores and um, you need to supplement if you're a vegan in order to not not injure, particularly mm-hmm. if you're a woman. Um, so, 
So just make peace with that in order to avoid avoid um, uh, you know uh, developing deficits. Because particularly when you're an endurance athlete, for example, those deficits are going to going to cause you harm. Actually, it's going to yep. be big stresses on your cardiovascular system if those are not addressed. Um, so uh, so I think yes, women particularly. Um, in the 20s, calcium is a big thing. It translates to osteoporosis in, in later life. Again, um, there's a lot of uh, influences online now that will say about this, don't eat that, don't eat. You know, so I think in your 20s, um, you know, women particularly need to have enough calcium in the diet to prevent osteoporosis in later life. Obviously, as, as uh, menopause comes, uh, there are hormonal considerations to consider as well and, and particular recommendations, as you say, that could take a whole podcast in itself um but i think it's exciting that we're starting to understand uh, particularly that women are different um because for a long time i think we've been applying male evidence well there's this um stacy sims talks about it. shrink it and pink it you know you just make something smaller put a pink wrapper on and say here's the female here's the female version and of course it's not because it's just a small, yeah, absolutely. It's, a small, it's a smaller male version is it and that and that uh, i think i think we're all starting to realize that we need to have a different approach not just to uh, the same but smaller um, yeah, so so I I like well-rounded uh, nutrition's year olds adages of lots of fruit and vegetables. Um, we probably don't need as much meat as or um, uh, animal protein as we eat. I think generally athletes know that. Um, you know, even the recreational world, I think they they do know that they can they don't need to eat as much as we you know the general population. Uh, does but we do um, need to supplement if we don't eat it I guess and then in terms of supplementation I've come really full circle on this in terms of when I started in in pro sport I thought well under diet you don't need any supplements but actually mm-hmm. the demands on the body um, make me think uh, slightly differently so and those three differences would be there's good evidence that um, there are strength benefits to be gained when you um, increase your protein if you're particularly you're you know needing to develop strength for for um performance aspects there's um i see a lot of vitamin d deficiency we just don't we just it's to do not only i used to think it was a uk thing um and uh but actually i one of my clinics is in the south is in Gibraltar, sort of southern mediterranean fantastic sun exposure the fact is that most of us live indoors and we spend most of our time indoors. And when we are out, we're hardly out in shorts or bikinis, you know, like, and we are a little bit like flowers. We need to expose surface area to produce vitamin D. I, th- so, I think I think two of the highest areas of vitamin D deficiency in the world are Australia and the Middle East, yes, where, yeah, you've, where, you've, where you've got huge amounts of sun, but people stay out of it because it's so powerful. And in Australia, mm-hmm. I remember when I was there, 30 odd years ago they had this campaign called slip slap slop about wearing a hat before you go out of the house so any vitamin d you're likely to get it's been blocked out by the the um the skin cancer avoidance things and 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 you know it was right to do that because people were a system you know of um you know often uh, very keltorogen so therefore they had increased risk of skin cancer but we've also made an enemy of the sun and i don't think we should make an enemy of the natural world at all and just knowing that um you know some sun exposure is necessary all you need is 20 minutes ideally twice a day um you know fully body exposed so not you know like even even in the sort of pro athlete you know to go out so but i mean outside all the time competing or training but but how much of your body i always say you know your palm is one percent of your surface area so you count how much so if you actually count your forearms that's one two three four five six six and if you're lucky your lower second that's about 20 percent of your body if you're lucky i think women probably exposed even less so, so if if you go out if you go out running with your shirt off guys or ladies if you like to wear a pair of shorts and a vest for running actually you, it's all about getting vitamin d it's not about trying to get a good suntan yes it's like, um and uh but choose the time of day you do it as well obviously like midday is super intense sun but it cannot be, uh, they always say that somebody actually did the study. You have to have a shadow that's double your height. Um, okay. And double your height to be producing vitamin D. So, uh, so you know, it's a nice sort of rule of thumb to know that you're actually producing this. The, the, but there's also a thing here about um, if you if you go outside and get natural light, because most, again, you sp- most of us spend the day cooped up, sat in front of artificial light with a computer screen or in an <laughs> office. If we get outside it's going to help our bodies produce melatonin, isn't it? Which is going to help with our sleep later. So there's a double, there's a double benefit for spending more time outside. 
sleep recovery a natural antioxidant that your body produces that actually naturally decreases with age as well so um fantastic and actually you know it's a great way of cycling uh, mental health mood you know retinal mm. stimulation with light we're designed to be outside we're still industry wise we're very much cavemen okay so you, you have protein and I, and I would say here this there's been there has been some research where they looked at fitness competitors fit, fitness physique competitors that i think for a year they had um four grams of protein per kilogram of body weight which is double the maximum recommendations and they did regular blood tests and found no ill effects for the liver or the kidneys so actually even if you are eating a little bit too much protein you don't really have to worry about it too much but right. yes, you know, most you most people don't most people probably aren't getting enough protein and i would i would concur with what you're saying about vegetarians and vegans it's not an eating philosophy i follow um, I have nothing against that, but I do think that if you are going to choose to follow that, you have to do your research first to find out what's going to replace the protein you're not getting from eating fish and meat. Um, back, 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 back to your point. So, so you've got two there. You said there were three that you've come around so immune, to. Immune supplements. Um, when you're competing, and particularly endurance athletes will know this, when you're um, training sort of intensive when you're training regularly um there's definitely evidence to say that there's an immune suppression in your mm-hmm. body. actually that's really relevant not only because you then more likely develop upper respiratory tract infections but actually because we know that there are immune mediated um systems around you know cancer the fight against cancer and all those things so so but it, it, hugely important to prevent infections obviously in the build-up to competition as so well what, so and what would they is, oh sorry go on if you're going to tell so us what they are we, we know this um not only through the rate of arteriosclerotic tract infections and in your more intensely training, particularly endurance athletes, but also in blood tests. You know, we see the markers, the, the mark immunity lowered when there's intense exercise. So I'm a big lover of zinc and high dose vitamin C. Oh, that's great. I've written those two down here. So I get, so, um, I get, I get top marks. The, um, your performance kind of uh, conditions sometimes get very hit up saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, but the natural um, antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, so therefore you don't adjust, you don't, um, uh, you don't adapt to a strenuous load. Um, and I think we can be clever about when we use them. I'm not entirely convinced that you don't adapt as much um, because if you're exerting the load, your body will be able. It might be that it affects the management, but you can be clever about when you use them, you know, and you don't have to use them constantly. So you could say, if you follow a training philosopher saying, actually, I don't want to take any of the antioxidants in high dose because um, I'm going to adapt less well to the stress of training and therefore it's going to affect my performance. I would argue with that. I'm not sold with that argument, but if that's the case, then by all means, when you're going into your intense phase of training, don't take it, but then take it immediately after to sort of um, you know, so like in the build-up to just protect yourself, really. Okay. I, I can I can tell you that you're not going to adapt if you get an respiratory tract infection. <laughs> what what um, are there any supplements that older athletes might want to consider adding in besides the ones you've mentioned here? I mean, somebody's re- I've had three knee operations now, minor cartilage tears, but still, I've got I've got knees that have been active since I was old enough to run, and so. You know, they've taken a lot of wear and tear in those sort of 50 odd years. And th- there are times when I do too much running um, that they ache. Now, some of that is muscle tightness and just, just misalignment of the kneecap. But I'm sure also it's to do with the reduction in cartilage. So um, I've had a few people recommend collagen to me. I've also had a few other people saying, yeah, but there's no evidence that collagen works. You just you, you might as well just chuck your money down the toilet because it's doing the same thing. So um, your thoughts on that? So I, I just, I'm a big, um, I'm quite passionate and I'm working with a company um, that produced collagen purely through the scientific interest. To be honest, it was a very natural, organic relationship. I was look, I'd been to a conference where they presented the, the, the evidence for collagen and I had a patient that I wanted to actually start on some supplementation. Um, a few things on that. There is evidence. There's not high level evidence, but for if we talk about high level evidence, actually, um, it takes about 10 to 20 years, depending on the amount of funding, to actually achieve that. And um, so we're always, and you know, in sport and in performance, we're always a little bit of a step ahead with the evidence. Now, the our usual concerns around using early phase evidence products are the risk of side effects or oil harm. Now, we're talking with collagen, we're talking about protein. We're talking about some the most common protein in your human body, um, 
that that your body recognizes as food. And um, so so it's the it's basically the greatest, the most common building block of all of all body um, tissues. Yes. I have a question here then. <laughs> if, if 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 I am eating a carnivore diet. Yeah. And I'm following the principles of eating nose to tail. So I'm not just eating the best cuts, but I'm eating some, um, I'm eating some organ meat. Um, um, if I have a chicken, I have some with the skin on and with the collagen and the, some of the connective tissue in there. And I'm eating my recommended one and a half to two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Will I not get enough collagen naturally then, or do I still need to supplement? Well, the problem with that is that, um, Collagen is a large molecule, so our guts are unable to absorb it. Um, right. It's full sort of molecule state. Um, it's fantastic. That's kind of one of the reasons why it's so great as a, as a structural component of our joints, for example, mm-hmm. because it's quite a strong, big molecule that withstands quite a lot of stress. So, so we need to, in order to be able to absorb it into our gut, we need the collagen peptide. So the natural way of doing that actually is through a bone broth, but you've got a bone boil collagen for sort of you know in the in the region of sort of eight to twelve hours in order to do that and that can be fish or or meat um so and then sort of ingest it every day so what we found is that in the studies uh, we've proved that actually when you do ingest collagen peptide it is absorbed in the gut and there's also measurements around body tissues that have an increase in collagen which is really exciting in cartilage particularly when they're surrounded cartilage cells which are you know little chondrocytes which are really highly specialized cartilage cells i love cartilage chondrocytes my favorite so i just <laughs> but um i can geek out on the chondrocyte but when you surround them with collagen peptides actually they produce so then take it in and actually produce um the type 2 collagen that actually cons- constructs your cartilage so it's really exciting stuff so what we find evidence-wise there's a lot of no number or um, a lot of different types of studies. So the cell studies, the ingestion, the joint pain studies in the older population. But what we, uh, the, the dose response study, so if you surround these cartilage cells with more collagen peptides, they produce more collagen type 2. So again, that's a dose response in its in its infancy. So again, that's one of the markers we use in medicine to prove a causal, cause-effect type response, you know, to... to and produce a cause. So to prove a causal relationship, we need a dose response. So that all the studies are, are of not level one evidence yet, which is what we use as doctors as you know to prove something a drug is effective. But but all of them seem to be pointing very much in the same direction. But we need to improve the quality and the numbers and and. Um, okay. You you mentioned placebo earlier in one of the other conversations we're having. Of course, if somebody's taking collagen and they start saying to you or me, well, my knees feel great, then we can't dismiss that effect either, can we? No, no. And uh, But interestingly, one of the studies, and, and um, it looks very good, and again, no study, none ever, is without limitations. But um, one of the studies actually looks at MRIs, and, um, and they see that actually after 28 weeks, so you'd expect a placebo to have well worn off by then. Not only did the patients have improved pain um, markers, but also they, the lining of the cartilage actually had improved. Mm-hmm. So now we need more studies to corroborate this. We need more evidence to, to say this is absolutely the case. Um, but I think it's extremely exciting. This is where where I might there's, there's case reports around um, collagen. You know, as you when you get your your little joint defect, you know, actually a little cartilage um, damage mm-hmm. and a little a little lesion in the cartilage. They have done quite well with collagen supplementation. So, um, you know, again, we we need to put all this together. Suddenly, it's early phase evidence. But what I will say is that um, it's exciting to say something that actually is not harmful. We know there's no adverse effects reported in any of the studies yet with collagen supplementation. So it is a protein. Your body recognizes it as such, absorbs it and uses it for the bodily tissues. And as a side effect, you might get better skin. So unless for okay. so because collagen obviously is a major protein in your skin. That's how we started looking at it. Actually, the plastic surgeons were quite excited about it. And I know you've got to go soon. So I'm going to ask you for a couple of quick fire answers. Um, I know that there's two forms of collagen. It's either bovine or marine. Is any is one better than the other? Well, it depends on what I would say is um, in terms of the, the structure of the collagen peptide, no. 
what is important is to check actually where it gets made, the quality, the, the advantage we have with the marine is that wherever it gets made, we know that there's not going to be obviously the, the concerns around jack of disease or, you know, the, the um, this is always a, a prime protein contamination is always a, a concern with us. So the, the marine collagen is a nice, safe, clean, effective, and also it's quite environmentally friendly because these are the byproducts of fish, of the fish industry. So, so it's yeah. quite a nice one to um, have. How long do we need to be taking collagen for before we start seeing effect? And is it once we've started taking, is it something that we need to take continuously, or can we can we cycle it within our within our lives? So again, very difficult to answer that question because um, we only have early phase evidence. People anecdotally will tell you that they start feeling better after a week. Now, I can't prove that scientifically, but then there's a lot that yes, it may be placebo, but there's a lot we don't understand about physiological factors as well so um and the studies look around 28 weeks for actually changes in cartilage to happen okay. again it's a building block you're repairing so you need to give that time of repair and um, yeah. if you're competing that the other great thing about it is that there's nice um strength benefits to be gained from some of the studies look at older people on strength programs with and without collagen ingestion oh really right better when they take the the collagen um realistically and then the other thing is um uh, that, that is interesting. Like I think you can do it naturally, but when you look at the bone broth concentration of collagen peptide and the and the sort of supplement concentration, the supplement concentration is much higher. You're able to sort of obviously concentrate collagen peptides much better in in sort of a a nutraceutical than we can in a in a bone broth. Right. Okay. Just just before we finish, um, thoughts on creatine. Oh, <laughs> difficult. Difficult. Yes. Yes. Yes or no? Or jury still out. Jury's still out for me. Okay, um, I'm right. still I'm still a little bit uh, um, suspicious. But then, um, yeah, I I you know I know colleagues and uh, professional colleagues who swear by it. So, but for me, jury out. Yeah, I I spoke with a doctor, Doctor Tommy Wood. Don't know if you ever come across him. He's based in the United States. He's he's a UK doctor, but he actually felt like creatine would be a good protectant for um brain damage for athletes that might get head injuries um cyclists skiers maybe even footballers that are heading the ball a lot we've heard all about that um the problems there recently so uh, that that might be an interesting area to explore i was reading all about psychedelics that i thought was a thing of the past but actually they're looking at oh. that Neuro, oh, the whole the whole neuroscience things another again we've already uh, we've already sort of um bookmarked three more podcasts haven't we Ava? <laughs> yes we have well listen for, for now dr Ava canaro it's been fabulous thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us i, I really appreciate your time um you've given me a whole lot of things to explore um <laughs> and hopefully we can get you on back on again to uh, talk about some of those other things we weren't able to get on today would love to. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. And like, like you say, I feel that there's a lot more we could discuss for a very long time. Okay. Well, for now, thank you very much for being here. Pleasure. <laughs> thank you to Ava for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. If you'd like specific guidance and structure for your training, then please think about joining my SWAT community where we have training plans for all types of endurance events as well as monthly live workshops diving deep on specific subjects to help you improve your performance and your health. And we also have a thriving Facebook community of like-minded individuals. You can also find a link for this in the show notes. Right, that's all for now. Have a great week and I'll see you on the next episode.